from a solutions perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges, we just need to stay focused. Uh, we need to be, be committed. We need to be steadfast because the solutions are out there and it may sound very kind of complex and complicated. It's, it's really not when you actually look under the hood and it's just like anything else, just keep it so simple. What's getting in our way is we distract ourselves constantly and we make a complex problem complicated, but there's, there are truly effective solutions that work. So we simply need to stay consistent and coordinated uh, towards driving solutions that can truly move the needle. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode recorded on April 17th is a conversation with Antonio Marquez, founder and CEO of Comunidad. Comunidad is an Austin, Texas-based, vertically integrated multifamily acquirer, developer, operator, and financier, and one with a clear mission and purpose in the area of creating community, hence the name Comunidad, in the workforce housing space. This is part two of our month of April leading voices exploration into the housing affordability crisis following our prior interview with Ismael Guerrero, CEO of Mercy Housing, who talked about low-income subsidized housing, with Antonio today talking about non-subsidized workforce housing. I want to frame the discussion a bit since there's a ton of subtext in this conversation. First, the term workforce housing, which has been widely adopted in the industry, is an awkward moniker, although one widely used, so we stick with it. Second, if you think of the workforce housing space as all over 50-unit multifamily that's neither subsidized nor, let's call it luxury or high-end, then it's something like 60% give or take of the investable multifamily market. Said differently, it is the multifamily market. And it is the population served by most of the multifamily owners of the business. Using the workforce housing moniker gives it a new name, but again, it is the majority of the multifamily market, whether you define it by the product and who it serves or the renter population and where they reside within the hospitality of our industry. We talk around this throughout the conversation, but what we're talking about here is the same part of the market where the typical model in the business has been value add. In a supply-constrained market, when economics allow, value-add can often result in the kind of retenanting and rent increases that have driven some of the headlines pushing back against our industry. Supply, demand, and the dictates of capital together drive these realities. Antonio's business model sits right alongside this, but with some twists, which we explore in the podcast. He's been able to access more patient, less IRR-driven capital, he emphasizes different, more community than luxury-oriented upgrades in his renovations. He provides social services and a property management approach that favors renewals over turnover. And his grail is long-term capital for a long-term portfolio hold, since these can be forever, call it core plus assets, as long as there's strong management and ongoing capital investment. Antonio contrasts his impact investment strategy impact investing bringing in yet another set of buzzwords with traditional value add, which he says is often extractive in its approach and outcomes. And he suggests that his economics are at least equal to or more compelling over a longer view than the extractive model. We do not explore it deeply in the conversation, but this is a model that has legs at scale, as we also heard in our podcast with Bobby Turner, in the sunshine states, but not so much in the coastal supply constrained markets where the supply, demand and incomes are more out of balance. 
those markets, I believe, will require more of a regulatory intervention, more similar to approaches that we heard in our podcast with Jordan Moss, for an impact approach to be feasible in workforce housing. There is no simple magic here to these approaches, and given the complexities of the business, most certainly one size will not fit all. Antonio and his peers have formed a group called the Multifamily Impact Council. Check it out on the web to normalize and measure impact outcomes of this business model. We've had multiple conversations with other players in the space on leading voices, including Avanath, Turner Impact Capital, Jonathan Rose, Isuzu Multigreens, and others on the show. I often say on the show that the word landlord is almost a curse word in the English language. Maybe this different face of the business can present the reality of our work as community builders and community partners as we as an industry address these negative effects of the housing shortage. Again, there's no one magical solution here, but approaches like Antonio's and his colleagues in the housing impact space are moving the needle expanding the options and hopefully changing the dialogue both within the business and in the public perception. I hope that the two episodes on housing affordability have been valuable to you as listeners on the show. Next month will be a two-episode series again, this time on the real estate services business with first a conversation with Brett White from global real estate services firm Cushman & Wakefield, and then with Justin Wheeler from Bercadia, a capital markets-focused services firm. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share your favorite episode with a friend and please review the show on your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions or interested in learning more about our work at CRG and talent solutions in the real estate space, please feel free to contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Please enjoy this conversation with Antonio. Antonio, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on our show. This is the second of two conversations this month on housing affordability. The first was with Ismail Guerrero from Mercy Housing, talking about big A affordable subsidized housing. And today we're talking about conventional workforce housing and what an important conversation to be having at this point in time in the country where housing is consistently one of the number one or two issues across the country with voters and in the popular imagination. So I want to talk about the housing crisis generally. I want to talk about where you fit in and what your business is. I want to talk about your story. Uh, There's a lot to discuss today, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having me. It's, It's an honor to be here. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me today. Cool. And let's start, usually in Leading Voices, we, we kind of get the overview. But I'd like to start the overview with your why. And that's a good place to start. I mean, I think everyone has a why at their core that that truly drives them. In in my case, my why really stemmed from my family and my family's story and their heritage and their heritage. And so that story is one of immigrants uh, coming to the United States with a dream. That dream was just simply providing more for their family. And my father uh, immigrated to the United States from uh, Jalisco, Mexico, from a small ranch and came from abject poverty. Coming to the United States, he landed in California. He was a farm worker, and this was pre-Chavez. So no workers' rights, uh, very harsh working conditions, but he sacrificed to provide for his family. And he was also, he had also this, this vision and this dream um, where he wanted to start a company. He, he was a consummate entrepreneur, always innovating, finally scraped together enough to start a company out of his garage. And 
what he was doing is he was um, importing products from Mexico and then distributing them wholesale to little mom and pop stores mm -hmm. and then grew that into uh, one of the largest wholesale distributorships of Hispanic grocery products. And so, you know, really at a young age, you know, working from that vantage point, working with my dad uh, in the family business, I mean, taking a van down, van down to the border to get arritos and jalapenos and, you know, products and that sort of thing and kind of distributing it into communities throughout California and then, you know, beyond was kind of how I cut my teeth kind of um, in underserved communities. And so, you know, my, my father had a lot of challenges. He didn't speak the language. Access to credit was an issue, you know, education, job access, you know, technical tools, that, those types of things just did not exist. Mm -hmm. And so you know, kind of those challenges and, and that background growing up in them informed and inspired the genesis really, truly of Comunidad and, and our pur purpose, which is to try and make it a little bit easier for the next generation, try and be a force for good in the multifamily space. In, in diverse underserved communities throughout the country, while also knowing that we need to create value for a diverse set of stakeholders. So our vision for, for doing that has really always been to kind of reimagine housing and, and look at it as more than just shelter and four walls, but a catalyst um, to support communities and elevate residents to their highest and best potential. And, you know, the way that we do that is we, we kind of think of you know, housing as, as a tool housing is kind of a vehicle of opportunity and the premise being that if residents not only are resilient but thrive uh -huh. in that equation then property performance also thrives and then the broader ecosystem of stakeholders also thrive as a corollary so it's it's really a powerful symbiotic relationship that we're trying to create yeah and when you say broader stakeholders you mean investors and people in your company as well as residents so there has to be a balance between those two goals Precisely. That's precisely it. I mean, and so, you know, it starts with the residents, it starts with, you know, a team, and then it's the broader community. And then, you know, partners ultimately benefit from all of that. And let's just go back to your dad's story for a sec, because it's just absolutely fascinating. Abject poverty comes, doesn't speak the language. He's a farm worker before Cesar Chavez. And then he builds one of the biggest wholesale dis food distribution networks in the country. What is what did you grow up through? Which period of that um, did you catch? And was it all the rise? Had he already started his business by the time you were conscious as a kid? <laughs> so it, 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 he started the company the month after I was born. Wow. Imagine that coming to the United States. He'd been here, I don't know, maybe five or six years and I was born. And so humble beginnings. And um, so, yeah, it was very early on. So I, I think the the consciousness part of that equation, Matt, is very near and dear because I, I, you know, feel like I was born an entrepreneur and right. uh, grew up in that environment and challenging in the beginning. And then he had success. And then, you know, he really kind of scaled the business over time. But a lot of hard work, a lot of commitment, a lot of, lot of belief and conviction in what he was doing and, the, and the, the community that he was serving. Right. And but it's interesting, many, many levels interesting here. But the ones that I'm kind of getting on is that you, as you grew up, experienced the growth of his business from what was true, had to be a mom and pop kind of size and scale into something institutional. And you saw that in your conscious life as you were growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and also what I saw is... So started in the garage, right? And then started to build the, the company slowly over time. And, you know, he, he was doing two things. He was building businesses, but he was also buying real estate. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, he, he was shrewd enough to know that for him to really kind of deliver a very unique product. And, and by the way, Matt, he'd go to these stores. He'd go to Benville, Arkansas and speak with Walmart. He'd go to Cincinnati, Ohio and talk to Kroger and he'd basically laugh him out of their, 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 you know, their, their corporate offices and saying, listen, you're not going to see Hispanic shopping in our stores. But so he ultimately had to be vertically integrated himself. So he bought real estate. Mm-hmm. He bought industrial warehouses, warehouse space. And so growing up as, as a kid, you know, it was really kind of building businesses and buying real estate. And so that's where my affinity for, for real estate came in. When I, I was the first to graduate college and I wanted to, you know, I was afflicted with the same entrepreneurial bug that my fa- father had an entrepreneurial condition that my father had. Right. And I really wanted to figure out how to marry those two things, really building quality, durable businesses, but doing it through real estate and housing was the most natural, obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of, because of the demographic and fundamentals that are going and it's just it's a great place to kind of marry kind of real estate kind of the social impact aspects and other things that that you know, that we do yeah and last question on this and then we really have to move on but i'm i'm curious when your dad came here and then when you were first growing up being hispanic was not mainstream and now mm-hmm. you can get hispanic groceries anywhere you want in the country all the time because it's always there it used to be your dad was probably only selling to bodegas but then selling to walmart by the end of the day what a transformation in our culture that is yeah and and that's absolutely right i mean the assimilation and this is what makes america great right back when he started the the company it was very an esoteric product that many stores did not want for a, a multitude of reasons so, you know, they, they were stuck to their knitting and focused on it. And then kind of the, the, the generational changes and the culinary, you know, preferences kind of changed. And so they were positioned very well to kind of serve both ends of the market from the traditional kind of, you know, authentic kind of Hispanic food to even the more kind of mainstream uh, folks that, you know, wanted to have a fajita night or a taco night or something like that. Back. Which so everybody it was a time does. to really kind of start a company like yeah. that. Okay, so let's talk about Communidad and what is just to give the headlines of your of your business. Uh, what's your portfolio? What do you have? How many properties? What's the most you've had? And what what's mm-hmm. that look like so we get a sense of size and scale of your business, size, scale, and location? Yeah. So before I go into size and scale, I mean, I, I think you know at our core, so Communidad is a people serving people business. I mean, that's what we are, and we've kind of positioned ourselves to do that by being at the nexus of housing affordability, ESG, DEI, and PropTech, and kind of coalescing those dimensions to really drive value. And, and we'll get into more detail on that as we move along that, but that's kind of who we are. And from a portfolio size, so we're, you know, we're, we're vertically integrated. Uh, we're ge- geographic, geographically diversified in 14 markets throughout the Sun Belt of the United States. At our peak, we're uh, approximately 15,000 units and 2 billion in GAV and gross asset value. And then we intentionally tapered down over the past few years, given the wildness in the market and now stand at approximately 6,500 units, which is a great size from my perspective for having kind of a presence in many markets throughout the country, but kind of managing and 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 also having the agility now that position as well for growth. And um, we've been an acquirer in the past, so mostly acquisitions and act rehab and preservation, but we do development. We've done development in San Antonio, and we've got a 200-unit uh, project in, in Miami as well. And um, also, our strategy is kind of across the cap- capital stack. So we have equity, 
but we also have debt and credit strategies. So we we execute on kind of a, a best ideas platform that's exclusively focused on workforce and affordable housing. With over 100 team members, we're 100% uh, diverse owned and controlled. And um, we've got offices in Austin, Texas, which is our headquarters, which is where I sit. Mm-hmm. Southern California, Atlanta, Georgia, and Washington, Washington D.C., which is where our credit team uh-huh. is located. And you sit in Austin, but your growing up story was San Diego, just for our listeners, in case we missed that in the conversation. Very true. Yeah. Started the company in California, migrated out here to Texas, uh-huh. but uh, still still have a roots and presence out in California. And and one thing you said in passing was it's a good size. And I think often of companies that acquire and sell as an accordion business, and it's hard to manage an accordion when it's at its smallest versus when it's at its largest in the bellows. But it feels like if you're at 6,500, that might be the small part of the accordion as it goes in and out. And it's, but it's hard to manage that both for growth and then for eventually going back down and up and down and up and down. And it's often driven by capital. Any comments to that from the people side? Then we'll talk about the capital side for a minute. It's a great point. And, you know, just kind of historically, we built the, the company. We've had great assets, great locations, many of which we wish we, we could have held on longer. But you're, you're right. Capital drives those decisions. But I'd rather be kind of at this size than call it 35,000 units in this particular market. I mean, our growth trajectory is really, we're trying to stay in that 20 to 25,000 unit range. So that's kind of our vision and path forward, our, our, our five-year plan from a growth trajectory. But, you know, you, don't, you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're not uh, so big and cumbersome where you can't kind of serve a mission, serve the needs, um, deliver, you know, great returns and rewards for, for, for investors and other stakeholders. But, you know, we're kind of just at that precipice of our next kind of growth stage, that next inflection point for us. But yeah, we're on the bottom end of the accordion in some ways by design, other ways, you know, driven by capital. And I'm going to guess a little bit of luck because if you did the shrinkage a little bit, which means harvesting and selling some assets two years ago, that was pretty good timing, certainly as compared to today. Absolutely. Yes. For our listeners, I'm seeing video and there's a smile on his face and in his eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I wish I I could say we were clairvoyant, but I just, it was one of those things that if you're not buying, you should be selling, you know, net, net. And, uh, and so the positioning is great. You know, the balance sheet is strong and, uh, we're really, you know, looking forward to the future. Cool. And I want to come back to the company and drill down on capital and what the business looks like in the different parts of, of your company. But let's now talk about this market. And I want to talk about the market in terms of what the workforce housing market is as a part of the overall multifamily business. And let me just repeat a couple things from the last podcast and then have you kind of talk more specifically about the marketplace. But a quick overview, there's about 21 million existing units of apartments, over 50 units. And if you think of over 50 as as the investable space or the non-mom and pop space, uh, that fits. And that leaves a ton out of the rental space in terms of properties under 50 and SFR and all that stuff. But anyhow, that gets to the point of 21 million units. If you look at the 21 million units, about 3 million are subsidized, uh, which is about 14%. And that only covers about a third to a quarter of low-income families. So low-income families are two-thirds of them are not served by the subsidized market, maybe served by your market. That's low-income versus moderate income. Last point here is about $7 million, 7 million 
units are A and B plus. So the, the good stuff, the institutional stuff that we think of as institutional. And that leaves about 11 million units for what one might call non-subsidized, non-luxury multifamily of scale. That's a huge market. That's 50, 60% of it. Comments on that? It is. I mean, whenever we talk about workforce housing or non-subsidized, non-luxury multifamily, I like how you put that, Matt, the missing middle. Right. You know, a lot of folks think that it's, you know, some sort of niche market, but it is, it is the broader preponderance of the multifamily market. You can't talk about the multifamily market without leading with workforce housing, essential housing, missing middle housing, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, the, the, the numbers I've heard anywhere from 12 to 16 million units. But so whatever the figure is, it's not enough. It is interesting because there is some research out there that suggests that there is plenty of supply in this space. And, um, you know, Economics 101 would, would, would dictate that that's probably not accurate. When you've got occupancy that is high as it is and rent growth as high as it has been, particularly, you know, in a post-COVID environment, you know, there's a supply and demand imbalance, a, a pretty severe one. And so uh, over half of the markets in the U.S. are underproduced uh, and another qu quarter are trending towards underproduction. So it's almost 75% of the U.S. housing market that is is really either underproduced or at risk of being underproduced in terms of the, 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 the trend and the trajectory that we're heading. I mean, the other thing that's working, the headwinds that are working against this kind of supply challenge is that uh, we're losing supply of about 100 to 200,000 units per year due to functional obsolescence, uh, eminent domain, demolition, and, and new development of luxury or just aggressive value-add units that are no longer affordable households and, and cause displacement. So depending on who you ask, there's a forecasted uh, four to seven million units of a housing supply shortage. So regardless of source, that is an enormous number and um, something we, we just must address and impacts nearly all communities now. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal on Friday last week, and it gave a range of estimates of the shortage from no shortage to huge shortage to middle shortage. And it depended on which expert you talked to. Although the one thing I know from a shortage standpoint is the pain, the way pain is expressed through editorials in the newspaper and through people coming to the NMHC meeting saying the rent's too damn high. I've never seen it this way before as the top issue in the country. That itself is evidence of something. And the shortage pushes people who have less money into a more painful position. It's just that that has been the trend. There's no doubt about that. No, no question. And, you know, it's this housing is a very personal relationship. It's a very personal and visceral um, effect on people's lives. And and so it's it's natural that folks are frustrated. Um, it's natural that this you know takes a you know, a large lens to look at because it is so complex and complicated. But, uh, you know, this is no longer a low income problem or a partisan problem. It, it's rather an American problem. And, and you know, it's a serious challenge that has deep seated ripple effects through society, policy reform and, and ultimately economies throughout the country. And that's really what gets people to act when you actually see it affecting local economies and the productivity of local economies. And we're seeing that run rampant with, with housing being one of the biggest uh, kind of drags on, on that sort of economic uh, potential. Right. And let's just think about that for a minute, because it's it's one of those classic, like, is climate change complex problems? 
And the mm-hmm. complexity of the problem at one end is homelessness, which is related to our business here. Second, it's affordable housing and how does that work for poor people, low income people, whatever the right word is. And then the missing middle has come into effect that we never heard those words before because they were adequately served, I believe. And then the last component of that becomes, where is the housing for those who need it? So if you're a teacher and you have to drive an hour and a half, A, you have a climate change problem, B, you have a traffic problem, C, you have a stress problem. And so, yeah, there's housing for those folks, but it's not where they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's precisely it. And it's also challenged to actually find the housing in high opportunity areas where residents can have you know better access to jobs, better access to schools, better access right. to amenities, because the lack of supply of housing is really kind of a regressive tax yep. on the low and moderate income, right? Because when you can't build it, then and there's higher costs, and that you know flows to to the, these households that that really need that type of relief, and then it it, it affects kind of the equitable housing and, and inclusionary housing aspects of it, particularly in high opportunity uh, high opportunity areas. Right, and again, once again, we think of inclusionary relating to low income housing, but inclusionary now is related to moderate income housing because some of the inclusionary rules get to people at 80 to even 120% of income. That doesn't make the affordable housing advocates happy because they want it all to go to very poor people. But all of the above are challenged and all of the above are, at the end of the day, kind of pissed off. <laughs> it's the pissed off factor that then comes into rent control and then comes into red state, blue state, and it gets really political, but that's why this is such a headline issue and so important. And let's briefly talk about shortage because it's really preservation that's your business, but the housing shortage here in terms of new production geared to this income strata is really hard to do, as is all new construction, but particularly at that income structure to make it pencil out given the costs. Any comments to that? Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, because just in terms of the income levels that you're trying to serve, the way that the the market is designed from a land cost perspective, from a material cost perspective, from a regulatory cost perspective, all those all those costs really exceed the incomes that that would you know justify a rent level and generate a yield that would be attractive enough to to actually that would be attractive enough for, for private equity capital and other capital investments. So that that's that mismatch that we were talking about. But mm-hmm. from my perspective, I mean, some of the solutions, Matt, are really re- revolve around kind of cost of capital, tax incentives, and then and then really regulatory reform. It's, it's those three areas that I think we can have the most material impact. Tax incentives is another one that's getting a lot of attention and for good reason, I mean, um, in our case, we've actually used property tax abatements very effectively. And in, in, in some instances, we've actually um, taken over assets and been able to actually bring rents down because of the property tax incentives. So it can be a very powerful tool. Mm-hmm. There's capital gains um, reform. So, you know, in, on in addition to LIHTC, looking at capital gains for communities that actually maintain a certain income level uh-huh. and preserve housing at a certain level. So the Bipartisan Policy Center and ULI and NMEC have been working on tax incentives. And then the last the last point that I was you know mentioning earlier, the regulatory reform. So this one's fascinating because you're seeing a lot of kind of moves in this in this area. 
particularly throughout the country, and it's it's state by state. But first off, you know, NMEC and NNA came out with some data, some research around what is the what are the costs of regulation, and so astonishingly, you know, forty percent of development costs can be attributed to regulatory constraints, and so you know, you're seeing a lot more push and and bold moves in states like California. California has their comeback plan, which is a it was $13.3 billion in unprecedented investment in subsidies, along with reducing NIMBYism. San Diego has a complete communities act, which actually has no unit, you know, maximum. So they have a FAR, there's um zero lot lines, you no know, parking requirements for for certain communities, and then mm-hmm. kind of impact fees you could actually reduce. And then Live Local Act in Florida is getting a lot of attention with Governor De- DeSantis. So that's $700 million. And then the last, the last one, you know, Matt, that I think is really interesting is a lot of people think, well, listen, you know, it's it's like, you know, almost insurmountable to actually change kind of the nature of, you know, moving, moving supply and moving the needle in a material way. Salisbury, Maryland. So this is a great case study. So yeah. they actually realized one of the biggest preventers or deterrence from actually getting more development was um, impact fees and permits. And so they, they just did away with them. They said, we needed, we need 2,500 units in this period of time. They did away with both of those hmm. restrictions. And, you know, within a year, they already had either units under construction or already built that actually satisfied their, their housing goals and their housing needs. So, that's that's a great example of when there's political will and tools that are leveraged to kind of align the d- development community with city interests, that transformational progress can be accomplished. So, yeah, I want to move on to existing stock more than development because you're less of a developer than you are an existing stock person. But this is important yeah. conversation to have. And also, you're the chair of the National Multifamily Housing Council workforce housing task force, right? So you know what you're speaking about because you're spending a fair amount of time from a policy standpoint. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I do serve on the workforce housing committee and the chair of it. And so, yeah, the mission is to foster kind of creation and preservation of workforce housing and uh, be kind of an integral partner in supporting the communities and residents we serve. So on the preservation side, Matt, so a, a lot of kind of ideas have coalesced around property tax abatements, subsidies, grants, um, you know, looking at preservation. Also, it can be viewed as creation, because as I mentioned earlier, there are incentives out there that actually can bring mm-hmm. rents down. So, you know, you're basically converting a market rate unit into an affordable unit, and that's creation. And some would argue that that from a green perspective is even um, more attractive than kind of the the carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions and everything else that comes from a supply chain of development actually build. And then, you know, the, the capital markets side of the equation. So we work with NMHC, the purview is really legislative. So things like property tax abatements and subsidies and other reforms. And then capital markets, which are, again, innovating products like helping with FHFA on products like SIA and sponsored dedicated workforce and now Freddie Mac's new preservation loans for uh, for workforce housing. And then the last piece is kind of the tax and treasuries, so just kind of the, the capital gains, LIHTC and middle income housing tax rate tax credits as well. I want to mash that up with this is 11 million units. This is the mainstream of multifamily investment. So mm-hmm. if not for these changes, what's happening to those units in the open market? Because they trade a lot. Who owns those units? 
who manages them, to what end do they, and then when they sell them, what is the model? And I think the preponderant model in the past has been more value-add, which is to move it into a different class of housing given supply and demand. So that's we're just responding to the marketplace versus preserving it. And then what kind of subsidies are there to have to preserve it for your business model? I'm thinking it said a lot of things at the same time, but because it's mainstream, right? This is the business that the people in the apartment business are in. Yeah, right. We really need to think about workforce housing, middle-income housing, low-income housing differently than we have in the past. I mean, historically, it's been viewed as kind of a, almost like an extractive business model in terms of the value-add space. Uh-huh. And you're, you're right. I mean, you know, investors would go in, they'd invest a lot into the property, they'd increase rents. A lot of times it would create displacement um, and a lot of other disruption and, you know, volatility. But, you know, my view is that these assets, because of the durability of them, because of the consistency of cash flows over a long period of time, I, I just feel kind of the capital markets model is is flawed, you know, in the, in the workforce housing you know, market. I, I think we need to figure out better vehicles to own these assets longer term, because I think that's where their in, real intrinsic value is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only way to do that is to incense the private market, right? Because the, the, the private market is going to behave based on what's available to them and they're, they're driven by returns. Um, there are some really good actors out there that are that are being more balanced and, and impact focused, and we're seeing a lot more of that kind of that that shift in the markets. But but generally speaking, we need to be able to demonstrate the, the true value of these assets over long periods of time. So there's more you know managers Matt, that are coming out with open ended vehicles mm-hmm. and rates and that sort of thing. So whereas historically, I remember I'd, I'd go into a meeting with an investor, large institutional investor. I won't name names, but you know, talking, you know, uh, about workforce housing and looking at it as more of like a core plus mm-hmm. or even core asset for that matter, just because it doesn't look as, as beautiful as that, you know, bright, shiny, urban core multifamily, luxury multifamily asset on the front of your brochure doesn't mean that it can't generate consistent, durable returns because that's what core and core plus, you know, investment really is. Mm-hmm. Low volatility, low standard deviation. And so, I was basically laughed out of their office, just like my dad was when he was, you know, selling his Hispanic groceries. So it's a very similar, you know, paths and parallels. But I think from a solutions perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges, we just need to stay focused. Uh, We need to be be committed. We need to be steadfast because the solutions are out there. And it may sound very kind of complex and complicated. It's it's really not when you actually look under the hood. Mm-hmm. And it's just like anything else. Just keep it so simple. What's getting in our way is we distract ourselves constantly and we make a complex problem complicated, mm-hmm. but there's there are truly effective solutions that work. So we simply need to stay consistent and coordinated so, uh, towards driving solutions that can truly move the needle. Cool. So in the next part of the conversation, I want to go under the hood of your business and how those durable cash flow returns are created, but let's stick with the capital markets for a few minutes. You were laughed out of the office. When was that? And are you now accepted into the office? And the holy grail has been capital that would look at this property class in a long-term core plus core basis so that the requirements of value add, which is to increase value and therefore got to increase rents, not that you don't want to increase rents. So I'm trying to figure out what is capital there for that? What's that look like now? How has that changed? Will it continue to change? 
in terms of risk-adjusted capital returns? So I remember that meeting very vividly. Uh-huh. It was in 2014. 14. Um, Not that long ago. Yeah. And even the person in the meeting told me, hey, listen, I hear what you're saying. It all makes sense. It's logical. I even see some of the data. But it was the hubris that existed and kind of the, the, the this institutional you know, group thing that created this, this bias. Now, that pendulum has shifted as more information and data and transparency around you know, this, this, this segment of the housing market has, has surfaced. And we saw it particularly resilient during COVID. So, no, I mean, those meetings are, you know, uh, I'm accepted with open arms now, Matt. <laughs> so I'm happy to say. So uh, there's a lot more appreciation for it. There's a significant amount of investment in the space and almost every major institutional uh, real estate uh, asset manager and investment you know, managers is looking at this, this particular market. Okay, and let's stick with this for a few more minutes. Is this CRA in capital that has an incentive? Is this state pension fund capital? Is it endowments? What kinds of capital sources are saying, okay, we will look at this as a stable bond-like return asset class? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> I mean, no, it's 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 astonishing. I mean, just the diversity of capital. When we when I started in the business, it was mostly family offices and high net worth investors and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Again, it was really transactional based and that sort of thing. It was, really wasn't kind of long term, you know, durability and looking at risk, you know, risk relative to reward. And so now, it, yeah, you have CRA and impact investors, but it's way broader than that now. I mean, you've got private equity investors, you've got pensions, you've got foundations, you've got in, endowments, you've got international investors that have come into the space. And the reason for that is there really isn't a compromise between re- risk reward in this segment versus you know another A class uh, <laughs> return, you know, multifamily return or, or core historically. Um, what you've seen. I mean, maybe you have a, a lower IRR or a short, shorter period of time. That's even arguable um, because I think particularly with A-class and all the, the, the turnover and attrition, and you're seeing a lot of a lot of concessions in the A-class market right now, and it's being over, over, overbuilt, whereas there just isn't enough supply in the workforce housing you know, market. But you know, over the long term, the multiples are as good, if not better. And, and that's what's really driving this move towards workforce housing. Plus, you add on the ESG and the social impact, where you know a lot of these asset managers and investment managers are, are getting pressure. Some of them are really oriented towards that in terms of their culture and values. Others are driven by other you know factors and forces. And so you know this segment you know, of the real estate market satisfies a lot of those requirements, and that's why you see a lot more liquidity and a lot more capital and a lot more efficiency in this particular market. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's talk about your company and then how you manage, operate these properties. And I want to think of the expense side. I want to think of the income side. I want to think of rent roll change when it's time for renewal versus it's time for a new tenant. And what are the, where in there do you find model through your operating platform? Where where in there do you find value from your operating platform and, and what's that look like? Yeah, I mean, so first off, our strategy is not, we're not targeting top of market rents. So rather, we want to be inside true market rate rents, but with competitor rents and kind of a mixed income band of rents. So um, we still want to be in the upper quartile and competitive, but offering a great value to our residents. That is affordable, it's highly amenitized, it's service rich, 
we also believe, you know, we can positively influence outcomes through social impact services with residents. So by helping them with tools of driving comes higher or reduce their expenses through our social impact services. And that helps mitigate the affordability risks. And so, you know, what you get with this, you know, approach is it supports really higher occupancy, higher collections, lower delinquency, and then also prevents evictions and homelessness. So you really kind of reduce headline risk as well as an investor. So that's the other reason that a lot of investors are attracted to it. And then, you know, by extension, you lower turnover costs, you lower marketing costs, you lower staffing costs, and all that flows down to NOI. And so, you know, the argument that we've made and been able to demonstrate historically is that we, we've, we're getting to a similar NOI as some of these value add groups. And the value creation is just may take a little bit longer, but it's also more sustainable NOI over the long term. And again, it's more durable. And so, you know, from, from, from our perspective, I mean, value add can take different forms, right, Matt, as we've mm-hmm. talked about er- earlier, but our model is really trying to be additive versus extractive mm-hmm. because I think many value add models have kind of distorted that value proposition to kind of be short-term transactional, you know, displaced residents and kind of hollow, hollow out and erode the life out of many of these communities. So we just add value differently through like impact services. We want to elevate residents and we just think it's a it's, it's a more sustainable model long term, and it achieves the best intrinsic value while by while still being accretive to residents and communities. Uh-huh. And let's so let's think about a couple things in there. One is when you talk about resident services in the big A affordable business, resident services is if it's paid out of NOI, it's a drag on NOI, and you don't increase it income because income is set by by the government but they fundraise around doing that and sounds like in your business model it's part it may not be as expensive because you're targeting this to workforce population not low income population with such intensive services but you're self-funding that and it's a virtuous cycle not a vicious cycle in terms of getting a return on that that's exactly i mean it's virtuous i mean that's the best way to to state it. And the way that we've kind of thought through that, because we had challenges, you know, in the beginning, as we started, you know, the, our social impact, we actually did it internally. And, and we realized that that wasn't really scalable. We kind of outgrew that because we had asset managers that were also trying to do impact and property managers that were trying to do impact. So we really had to set up kind of a dedicated team and really start a nonprofit to be dedicated to these social impact services that could also provide them on a subsidized basis which was unique and innovative in the space. What, what do you mean by that? And one one other comment here. I, I want to distinguish between the word virtuous, which is, it's a virtue and it's lovely, virtuous, it's virtuous cycle, which is economically driven at the end of the day as well. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's exactly right. And so, you know, the way that we kind of view that is when, when we actually have our impact services, mm-hmm. you know, the we house it through through Veritas, our, our nonprofit, our nonprofit partner. So their investments into our, the residents. So if they have a jobs program, for instance, that is helping our residents generate, you know, better paying jobs and higher incomes, or they have an after school program, um, we're reducing educational costs or or virtual tutoring, or if we have uh, healthcare, we, we provide for, you know free virtual healthcare to our residents to actually reduce their, their uh, you know, costs of, of, of medical care and others and prescriptions and that sort of thing while increasing access to, um, to health care. 
So all these things, again, improve resident NOI. Mm-hmm. And our view is if that, that we're improving you know, resident NOI by extension property NOI improves. And so that's that virtuous cycle where, again, we're investing in our residence as the real asset. And because of that, our property assets actually perform better. But it, you know, it takes kind of a dedicated team. And when I say kind of um, subsidized, right, for us to actually bring this on, you know, set it up, have the team, invest in all, all you know, all the programs and be significantly more expensive than the, the, the cost that we're actually paying at the property. Why? Because Veritas is funded by a number of different private donors, foundations, and has other, other grants to kind of reduce the cost. So that's, that's what makes it really kind of compelling. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of this kind of for-profit and non-profit uh, can coexist and not only coexist, but actually highly complement each other. And it also, you know, makes it kind of sustainable. And, and through the through the technology piece, which is fascinating, we'd have a whole other conversation around how it's in the, the impact tech and how that's integrated in, because you need to have kind of the, the people component, but you also have the tech and virtual component. And through those two things, that's how you ensure that it's replicable and scalable. And that's how we kind of designed it. So uh, talk about the technology side for a few minutes. I want to hear about that. And then I want to dive into a little bit more ratios, turnover, uh, collections, uh, what you do on rent roll, stuff like that. So, but talk about technology. How does that impact in this? So with Veritas, we've always had kind of technology at our core. Um, COVID really kind of, you know, tur- turned that into high gear and really accelerated kind of the technology creation and adoption. And so um, things like virtual health care. Um, we can provide our residents 24-7 access to doctors and nurse practitioners, and they can, you know, issue prescriptions, um, save our residents a trip to the pharmacy or the doctor's office, which is saving them gas and time off of work and all these other kind of disruptions in terms of their their life and taking care of kids, right? So that's a very good example of how technology has, has kind of really changed, the di- transformed the dynamic of health access and health care to our residents. Um, we've got a virtual tutoring program. We've got virtual fitness programs. So a lot of a lot of the things that we've done that we've actually proven concept on in kind of a high touch, you know, high personal interaction basis, we augment. We don't substitute, we augment with a technology solution that's convenient, uh, provides better access and, and gives us really, really good data to the extent that it doesn't violate, you know, privacy laws or, or HIPAA laws. But it's really helpful for us to understand our, our impact outcomes and how we can continue to invest in the things that matter most to our residents. It, it's so interesting. So where I thought you were going to go was towards prop tech, a discussion of prop tech stuff, renter stuff. And you're thinking of your residents through these services as holistic people, not as renter people. Again, you said the opposite of what I expected you to say. So it's just interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a relationship. It's just as if you have a relationship with your team members or you have a relationship with your family or a friend or that sort of thing. Again, if you're transactional, if you look at, you know, rent it, as you said, renter people, uh-huh. that's one dimensional. And that's not viewing, you know, your greatest asset in, 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 in terms of uh, everything that they, they, you know, again, all the potential and all the opportunities that they can provide. Um, and so that's why when you look at it more holistically, yeah, it takes a little bit more work. It's a little bit more nuance and that sort of thing, but you can codify and systematize these things. So you're thinking about the resident and, and, and what they need in terms of their lives and look at them in terms of the entire life cycle, not just, you know, when they lease or they renew, but look at, you know, the, the, the things that you do, do in between the lease signing 
and then the renewal mm-hmm. drive your success from a renewal ratio perspective. And, you know, we're hyper-focused on renewal ratio, lowering turnover rates. You know, our same store, you know, turnover rate is 35%, Matt, which is, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% lower than, 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 than the market based on uh, National Apartment Association data. So mm-hmm. it, it works. It very much works. And there's a whole other, you know, layer of operational KPIs that also, we also focus on to make sure that the communities that we invest in, the amenities that we invest in, and the services that we invest in are actually driving value for the resident and then ultimately the property. Yeah, and and I I want to keep driving back to how this affects the property because we're real estate people talking about this. It's nice to care about people holistically. It's really nice. It's wonderful. It's virtuous. But I want to get back to the virtuous cycle about this and where it comes back to either drive people to want to come to your properties in the first place when there is a vacancy, certainly stay, and then stay at reduced cost because that's what drives capital to say, wow, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy these returns and it's stable. Yeah. And, it, and it's just, you know, you know, reimagining again, the value proposition. And so from, from our perspective, you know, we focus on reducing deferred maintenance, yeah. making sure that you, you know, the community is highly functional, that it's amenitized and then ultimately tailored to the communities that we serve and, and it's service rich as well. So when you do those things that decommoditizes the housing offering and really enhances the resident experience. Uh-huh. And so, so again, it, you know, if I have a sticky service, right, something that our residents can't get elsewhere, many of our residents are underinsured or uninsured. So if I have healthcare, right. Or if I have tutoring or after school programs for the kids, again, that, that, that creates this, kind of connective uh, magnetic force that occurs at the property and in ways that we can truly add value to our residents. Mm-hmm. And then the way that it actually, you know, transfers over to the to the balance sheet and the PL is again, we can keep our occupancy higher. Yeah, we may not have top of market rent, but we can make up for it in other ways. Higher occupancy, lower delinquency, you know, higher total revenues, lower expenses, right. and then it and then it improves in a why. And so that's really how that symbiosis between the social impact, right. communities, the services, that's how that all translates into kind of financial success as well. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting. I was at a conference last week at the Fisher Center for Real Estate for UC Berkeley, and Thomas Friedman spoke. And I, I've had the privilege of seeing him speak live three, four, five times at conferences, which is just amazing because he's one of the world's best integrative minds, if that's a good way to put it. But one of his comments was, no one washes a rental car. He said, these are truisms in the world. No one washes a rental car. And I, it, it stuck with me a whole bunch. Well, what you're describing is maybe people are going to wash your rental car because there is community there. So it's a different, you're not Avis and Hertz. We don't care about their car. <laughs> we do not return it having washed it. But if I'm going to be there and keep it for a long period of time, I guess I'm probably going to wash it. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental distinction is that, you know, these families are not jumping in a car for a few days. This is a life choice. You know, this is where they're, you know, raising their kids. This is where they're creating, you know, their path, their economic path. This is where they're realizing their dreams in many ways. This is where they have family that is living, you know, right next door or or at the building next to them or friends because they've referred them. And you create this 
you truly create this community. It's 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 a it's another life force. It's another it's another you 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 can never see it on the PL, but if you actually walk our properties, Matt, and you, you meet our residents, you go to our events, and you you kind of sense that energy, you, you know, when you get out of the academic and you're actually on on at the communities and you see it in action, you see that magic occurring, mm-hmm. then it all makes sense in terms of the retention and you know the NOI and, and revenue and all those different things. And that's why it's really gratifying. You, those two things really live together in harmony. And so let's come to where the rubber meets the road on a couple of questions, then we're going to move on. Rubber meets the road on the pain points here, and one pain point is rent increases. So it's time for me to renew my lease. How do you deal with that when the markets just pop 15 20% or the neighboring properties? What, what, what's, the, what's the model there? So you know, our model there is we're still trying to be under market. So if if the market has has popped fifteen percent, then we're still going to be under that market. You know, the on the flip side of that rent growth was 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 inflation and expense cost escalations, where we had you know more than that in many different categories in terms of cost escalations, notwithstanding insurance and insurance markets. So you know we're we're we're, we're cognizant of kind of rent and rent growth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're, we're cognizant of costs and having a sustainable business model, but still within that being competitive, being, you know, budget friendly, knowing that we're not going to really stray from our kind of principled investment, you know, uh, approach where we want to keep occupancy up and those types of things. You know, when we talk about kind of what's happened over the last, you know, three years, Matt, in terms of the, the, the rent growth and, you know, double digit you know, even 20s in certain markets, I can understand, you know, the consternation that many residents and, and communities have. And right. part of it's that supply issue that we were talking about earlier, right? And so, you know, we really need to kind of address that. And if, we, if we're not addressing the root causes underlying that, that the housing shortage and the affordability crisis, it'll, it'll fuel just more rent, unfortunately, just have market forces in terms of supply and demand. So we've got to think more broadly about how we can actually mitigate that through some of the things that we were talking about earlier. All true, but I'm back at your property. So there's, there's the, there's the macro and the micro. And at the micro level, you're running a property. It's time for renewal. The market's increased 20%. You're the good guys. How does the good guy behave in a specific property in that kind of market when it's renewal time for a specific resident who you want to maintain? And how does your approach differ than the other guy's approach? So our our approach differs in the sense that we're we're normally you know providing a discount to market for those renewals, mm-hmm. and our renewal ratio is normally in the sixty eight percent range. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you know, unless you know there's really challenges in the market, we're just seeing not enough demand and not enough uptake. We're typically not flat. We have been in the past, depending on the circumstances, but we're typically not flat. So we will have an increase um, that is moderate and again, affordable to that renter. And, you know, what, what, what I think also is, is fascinating is, you know, some, some, you know, some of our peers actually have high renewal rates, but they're actually not pushing renewal rents. We're doing both, mm-hmm. but we're doing it in a way again, that we're, we, we think we're adding more value than just kind of shelter and just providing another apartment complex. Um, and that's proven in the numbers where you're, you're actually, you know, having renewal trade outs and, 
you know, in the high single digits and you're having renewal ratios in the, in the high 60 percentage rates. And that to me is telling me that, you know, our residents are, are voting with their checkbooks and they're happy where they're at mm-hmm. and they're happy with the value that we provide. Mm-hmm. And in the marketplace, I guess they're making a decision to stay versus go. So they're not, it's not a binary, hey, I can't afford this. I got to go. Where am I going to go? What's it going to cost? And if you're being sensitive to wanting them to stay versus trading them out, then that moderates where you can go to what you want to achieve, given that you're maintaining your high renewal rates. Yeah. And and we'll be very transparent about, you know, about the market as well. And we've got, you know, market reports and we can share, you know, other, other, other comps um, in the market. And then the other thing that we do is, um, we also want to understand what our residents are facing. So meeting them where they are means also trying to understand what their challenges are. So, you know, we, a lot of our renewal, you know, practices start 90 days out, really kind of understanding where they're at, you know, in life. And so if you've lost a job again, or, you know, having trouble making ends meet, we've got 90 days to help you on that path to get a new job, to have more stability, to get you know you know new supplies if you're a construction worker and helping in terms of you know access to credit or or other things you know plugging you into a bank there's a lot of different tools in our toolkit to help again it's not the conversation isn't really about rent it's about how can we help you improve in your life right and taking those steps and when you do those things and that translates into the in, into the the statistics that I just shared from an operational perspective and that is the holy grail when you can have high renewal rates, keep great quality tenants, still have moderate rent increases that are reasonable, that mm-hmm. are affordable, and that creates kind of that durable cash flow stream over time. And it's interesting because some of that gets down to training of your person at the site level that's got to be different than how they're trained anywhere else. Precisely. And that's why, you know, a lot of training goes on with our, with our you know, site personnel you know, the importance of social impact. What's in it for my site team as well? Why, why, how do you benefit by helping your residents? And so we talk through that in terms of, you know, how that helps you in terms of not having to, to turn a unit, right? Plus we bonus off of those things. We, we actually pay a higher renewal commission than we pay a new lease commission because we don't want the freakonomics to occur where our, our you know, there's per- perverted incentives where, our site staff is it engineering or fabricating turnover when that actually is a complete antithesis of what, you know, we want to do as an organization and what aligns with our values and what we think is, you know, the best business proposition for, for the property and the investment. Right. Wonderful. And you mentioned in passing before tax abatements. So I want to think about, and, and again, we, the last guest was Ismail Guerrero from Mercy Housing, where they have requirements on their properties that last for 50 years here maybe they're voluntary but when you're getting tax abatements you're putting on a regulatory agreement of some sort so kind of talk about that yeah that's right so we're putting on a vol- voluntary income restrictions and you know we're doing other things to demonstrate that this i'm much more of a you know carrot than a stick guy and Lures and, and regulatory agreements are, are great and, and I think important, but also you don't want to, part of my concern is, you know, some of that work reduces the buyer pool on the back end. 
And so I would much rather have on the back end, if we're selling or recapping, just demonstrating why this is a better business model and having a new buyer, you know, coming in, either you know, take on a loan from Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae that incents income restrictions or impact for that sort of thing, or can work with Veritas as a turnkey solution. One of the other reasons we created Veritas is because we would be asked to stay on as, as property manager <clears throat> or providing impact, and we just don't provide that to the open market on a third-party basis. But Veritas can, right? We've had instances, Matt, where we've, you know, We've had a two-bedroom that was an after-school program at a community, and and as we go through these buyer interviews when we're selling an asset, you know, we we ask the buyer what, what what is your plan, and you know, we had one buyer that was the highest bid, and they were saying, listen, we're going to actually convert this two-bedroom into revenue unit, and we worked with them and said, not that we prohibited it, but listen, you know, this is going into our our process of evaluation, maybe rethink this approach. Mm-hmm. Everything that you wrote from a turnover rate, from an occupancy rate, from an NOI basis when you actually bought the deal, in in many respects is due to this after school school program that actually kind of galvanizes the community and creates that retention and that sort of thing. So reconsider this. We think these are actually good business practices. And by the way, here's Veritas to actually, you know, to keep it simple for you. And in in, in that case, you know, they kept that program because of the, again, the communication, the articulation of the business program. And so um, there are tools that you can do to actually keep long-term affordability, you know, beyond just lures. Lures have have a place, but I think we also need to think more broadly about, about that and how to really incentivize that type of behavior, because I think that's, you know, a good sustainable model long-term. So let's talk about that, dive down more deeply on that. How many properties, it's not the right word, but how much of your portfolio has Allura land use restriction on it? Or, and how much is, is purely voluntary in terms of your business model? Great question. So we have 10% of our communities that have Allura. Uh-huh. And then another 80% are we have voluntary income restrictions in place. And a lot of times that is that is effectuated through some sort of loan covenant or some other covenant, but it's typically not with a, a third party, you know, governmental agency. Uh, and then the last 10% don't have any form of income restriction or, or any, any instrument for it, but we still, you know, our portfolio is 98% of the units are under 80% of AMI and 55% of the units are under 60% of AMI. So still, you know, very affordable and, and and from a mixed income perspective um, as well, we've got the diversity of in, incomes at our communities. Oftentimes taking on a regulatory requirement is just where you are already, so there's no cost to do it, is what you're describing. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you can make that stand and make that statement and also, you know, preserve those rents. Because even if, you know, again, like we were talking about earlier, many years will go in and They'll take rents and they'll increase them, you know, twofold, threefold and that sort of thing. And so this is just a different approach. Okay. And then let's go into hold period, hold period expectation of your capital. And then we'll come into who's buying. Yeah. So hold period is anywhere from five to seven years historically, although we're trying to create... You know, our vision long term is to have more open ended vehicles to hold for longer periods of time, 10 plus years. 
Well, as you, everything you've described so far de describes something more akin to a REIT that's a hold forever model that fits what you're trying to do. So if the sale and the harvesting is what makes the economics work versus what the, the cash flows are and the NOIs are, they're two different stories. There are. And I think, I think there's value in both. I think, you know, when we, we take over properties that are downtrodden, there's a lot of deferred maintenance, you know, the previous, previous over was neglectful of the property. And this is where our impact can really take form as we go in and invest, you know, dollars infuse, you know, capital for amenities and services and those types of things. So really kind of, again, our, our, our version of value is much different than most other firms. Our, our version of value is how can we add, you know, how can we add, um, all the things that our residents are looking for while not creating this disruption and turnover and attrition. And you can do that and add value there because particularly we're probably buying at a discount. We've got to invest capital. We've got to you know invest in services. A lot of our social impact doesn't even really take form until year two, Matt. So it mm -hmm. takes you know, time for that to kind of mature. And then when you've got an asset that's at maturity and you got same store, you know, you know stabilized you know, financials and metrics that are, that are proving that it's very consistent, then, you know, our vision for the future is that you could house that in some sort of open-ended vehicle. So you could have the closed end for the value and then the open-ended for the storage of that value over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And if you sell, it's interesting. So you're doing a value add, you're doing, you're buying the same property value add would buy it, but you're value adding it to a different business model and then when you do sell it, the question is, does the buyer continue that business model, which you've proved to be compelling, or do they accept the clarion call of the open market and a next level of value add to move it into a different part of the market, to move it upscale in that way for a different population? And you, maybe you can control that, maybe you can't, unless you have a abatement on it that lasts beyond the term of your ownership. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases we can, in some cases we can't, but again, I'm a big believer of like, you know, as you go through the process and you select the buyer as the next, you know, steward of that community, you got to be thoughtful about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll probably be surprised in terms of the competitiveness of, of firms that are out there. I think you have this generational shift that are, that is occurring uh, in terms of multifamily leaders that are trying to do more impact and, and, you know, realizing the benefits of, of this sort of model. So, you know, although we were maybe one of the first, we're not the only, which is a great thing. Yeah. And you have a lot of, you know, institutional investors that are getting in this space and other impact oriented investors that are non-institutional that are getting in the space. Multifamily impact council is, is a framework that Bob Simpson is starting. And so it's got mm -hmm. 28 of kind of the foremost leaders in multifamily that are trying to solve, you know, this, this problem, but also creating kind of the, the rubric of how to make this business work and how to create more of this. So like I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly more liquid. And so that means from a buyer pool perspective, we're, we're getting much more diverse, you know, buyer set that's more, much more aligned with what we do. So even if we do sell it again, we'd like to own assets forever to your point, they're an open-end fund, but if we do sell it, we have a lot more options to choose from in terms of the next buyer in that can, you know, have the continuity and can, you know, be a good shepherd of, of the community and a good steward of what we've created. Do you still have a fiduciary with your investors to sell to the highest bidder, or does, do you have a fiduciary to your investors that says, hey, we're going to sell it to these guys, which might be 3% off, but it's still going to, they're going to continue the mission? Yeah, well, it's highest and best. 
So in many instances that impact, you know, investors, it can be the highest because there's property tax subsidies and other subsidies, um, or you may have a, a, an investor that just has a longer term view, whereas you may have a value add investor that's trying to hold for three years or four years and they're IRR driven, but not really multiple driven. That doesn't always mean that they can, you know, generate the right, the, the highest price. If you've got a 10 year investor that's looking really at equity multiple over 10 years, that's, that's, that's really competitive against the short term, you know, value add buyer. So, we and a lot of times the, those groups are more sophisticated. They're going to give you the best execution, mm-hmm. the most you know efficient and and reliable execution. So it's both, and I th- I think you can you know have impact oriented investors that will 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 give you a really good price, and will align with the mission and the values and everything else that you've spent so much time in terms of the community goodwill on as well. Mm-hmm. And as you prove out this concept, as have others then not only are there more buyers this way, but also you're proving to the mainstream audience, because this is the mainstream property type, that this behavior model can return as much, if not more, and more stability than other models. Precisely. Precisely. And it's a flywheel, right? As I mentioned, when when I first started the business, just workforce housing, it wasn't even called that back then. But it was just an often overlooked asset you know, segment and just not a lot of cap because there just wasn't enough data. Now there's a lot more data. There's a lot more transparency. And I think that's only going to continue to have, you know, booing effects and, and long-term kind of residual, you know, benefits for those that invest in this space. Got it. Okay. We're going to have to start wrapping up a couple of other questions in your business. You now have a capital side as well as the ownership side. So talk about how that fits into your vision for the company. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've really, even since our inception, we always felt that, you know, we wanted to have impact and it didn't matter if it was equity or credit or, or any type of investment. It was just, we were pretty agnostic. It's just how could we have impact at scale and, and, and make it replicable. And so we formed a credit a strategy really to kind of extend our impact to more communities and, and execute on innovative capital market solutions that we think are highly com- com- complementary to what we do. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to build a, a relationship with Debbie Jenkins, who was the former head of, of multifamily at Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. And uh, her and I innovated, you know, capital market solutions for workforce housing and impact services and voluntary income restrictions. So we really kind of have a, had a great track record in that. And so the real vision is, you know, how can we leverage our equity playbook into a credit solution? for other bars so that they can utilize lower cost of capital at, at advantage terms, ESG implementation and reporting and data, right? Because that's a big hurdle and an obstacle that we think we can be helpful with. Uh, and then even access to credit for diverse and emerging borrowers. And so, you know, we're, we just, we think that we're at this moment in time, you know, when you've got 74% drop in sales, you know, multifamily sales, you know, velocity and transaction activity, you've got capital markets where, You've got this wave of maturities. There's about 35 billion this year, Matt. About right. you know nine next year, and 80 to 100 billion in the next three to five years. So, you know, you couple these two things together. We we just felt it was really important to have an impact-oriented, like highly impact-oriented credit you know, vertical that can you know work up the, up and down the stack. And one of my you know personal concerns is that you know right now in this environment where there is less capital, um, that's going to make Workforce and affordable housing really vulnerable to physical degradation, 
and owner operators continue to push rents due to higher cost of capital or insurance or interest rates. And so our, our purpose is to really figure out ways to kind of bridge that gap and provide kind of services and tools that can be differentiated, that's highly focused in this workforce housing ESG social impact space. Um, and it also helps that you got, you know, FHFA and kind of the, the tailwinds of Fannie and Freddie and, right. and, and Cal that's, that's looking into this long term. But um, that was kind of the impetus and, and, and the vision for the credit strategy in particular. It's interesting because you started this well before the Silicon Valley Bank surprise, if surprise is the right word. Although with interest rates, we'd already been in the downturn of transaction volume. I'm wondering if the time has come that when we come back into a normalized market with all the opportunity of distress in the middle of this, when we come out the other end, does this model of workforce housing now capture 20% of transactions, 30% of transactions instead of 10% transactions? Is it your time for that to happen or our time for that to happen, given the fundamentals and given the prove out of this concept? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think those that are positioned to, to be in workforce housing right now, because it's so fragmented, because you know so many groups got into space and you got short-term debt, was, which is high leverage and were right. you know, undercapitalized, didn't have a strong balance sheet at the corporate level and were over leveraged. I think you know, this is a, a perfect time you know, to, to be positioned for that. And the most important time, because again, you know, those assets need you know, some sort of you know, safe exit, some sort of exit where it, it doesn't become um, you know, this attrition and this disruption and that sort of thing. So that's, again, that's the primary reason for something like this to be that kind of stabilizer and, and that shepherd of ensuring that these assets don't, you know, continue to, to devolve. So before we conclude the conversation, I want to go back up to 10,000 feet because we started there in terms of what the overall workforce housing part of the market is, which we estimate at 50, 60 percent of the multifamily investment market. We've talked all about your business, and I want to go back and talk at the high level about that part of the market and what the future may hold for it. And we just talked about maybe coming out of a recession, it might be stronger in terms of what the, what the players in that space behave like. And I want to think of that last, last part to the question. And I'm also thinking we have a new president at NMHC who's very policy oriented. Yeah. So, yeah. but policy is going to matter because if we don't do it right, we're going to get bit in the ass. <laughs> so that's the question. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, we're at this point in time where we've created these uh, divisions, right? And, you know, you've got this political unrest and rent is too damn high, right? And where we have, you know, just this friction that's occurring. And a, a lot of it, I think, is because we put up these barriers and these walls and we get, you know, dissociated from, again, the residents and communities. And so we need to find, you know, more effective ways to, you know, be closer to our residents and our communities, uh, you know, and and so from from my perspective, I mean, I think we, we, we have this kind of crisis of identity where we need to reframe the narrative, we need to reframe the relationship. We need to be able to demonstrate that, you know, our industry and owner operators and developers and housing providers, we are we are partners in community, and we can be integral and 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 add value to each other. There's an interdependency that exists 
and we need, need each other now more than ever and need to come together to work on real world practical solutions. So it can't be one party or the other, but we got to foster collaboration, respect. And, and that's what drives meaningful change and progress. And so, you know, my fear is that, and we've been on this path of like div divisiveness and, and right. polarization, but it really ignores kind of the commonality and alignment we have as Americans. And we need to focus, you know, on supporting each other between, you know, residents, housing providers, and, and, and housing can be an equalizer and everyone can contribute to it. And we need to also figure out how to utilize the private market as a partner in that community that I mentioned earlier. Because if we alienate certain stakeholders, especially owner-operated developers, which are key to spring supply, then we're doing the country and local communities and, and, and you know, residents a disservice. So we just need to figure out a, a way to kind of forge all that. And there's a way. We just got to keep at it and keep discourse up and, you know, get closer and have town hall meetings and yeah. connect residents as, as housing providers and, and do all those things to really kind of reverse this, this sentiment and, uh, and discord. It's interesting. Your comment, reframe the discussion, is, is really well put. I say this on Leading Voices all the time. The word landlord and the word developer are two really horrible words in our popular culture. I grew up with associating the word landlord with that guy on the Monopoly board with the cigar. Yeah. And yeah. if the, that caricature changes to what we talked about today in the popular culture, if you were our guy on the Monopoly board, it wouldn't be Monopoly. We wouldn't kill each other at the end of the day, at the end of the game. There wouldn't be a winner and a loser. We'd all win. That's right. That's, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I don't use the L word. Yeah. <laughs> Purposefully, because right. I, I think it doesn't kind of, you know, convey what we're really talking about here. It's really a relationship. And and the more that we can understand that and get closer yeah. and you know, disintermediate that, I think the better off we all are going to be. Totally true. OK, last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in my kind of personal journey. So, Matt, you know, I didn't have to do this, right? I was with the family company, you know, in early, started out of the garage. Work ethic was always extraordinarily important, but I could have stayed in the family company and done just fine, right? But mm -hmm. I, that's not how I'm built. That's not how I'm wired. I, I really had to think hard about what I really enjoy in life, right? Who am I as a person? And what are you really passionate about? I know passion gets thrown around a lot, but if you really focus on that and find a vocation that could easily be a hobby for you, mm -hmm. never get into space because you just you're you're wanting to make a lot of money. You know that's probably my, one of my biggest advices. That will never lead to intrinsic happiness. I didn't even know how to make money in the space when I got into it, nor if I would be profitable. But I had a deep seated passion and, and drive to make a difference, and so. That would be, you know, my, my advice is just, you know, uh, drive towards what, what makes you happy, know what that is, be passionate about it, um, align yourself with the right people and, and organizations that share your values and know that it's, it's, it's a long game. You know, I, I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, the current generation and, you know, my generation was also guilty of this as well as there's a lot of immediate gratification, but just make the long-term investments, have patience. It's funny, you didn't go into this to make money. You, you probably did. You did, through this conversation, we've talked alongside of your goal and your business model and making money through the entire conversation. And they've been balanced in this, although you went into a higher risk model because no one had proven out the model before, or few had proven out the model that you had. Yeah, 
And listen, I mean, I think the thing is that the rewards take care of itself. I mean, I've far surpassed any of my biggest you know, dreams um, in almost every single respect. And so, you know, now it's my opportunity to kind of continue, continue to pay it forward. Yep. You know, you have to have a business model that, that, that can grow and can be profitable, but it's not about, in my view, maximizing profitability, because I think you have short-term consequences, especially over short periods of time. It's about optimizing it, balancing it, giving back, right? And highly focused on people. And I think if you do those things, again, you know, these, all these different rewards can kind of work in, in, in harmony with each other and, and synchronize. And so um, I'm just really fortunate to have gone down this path and extraordinarily happy and love what I do and, you know, planning on doing it for a very, very long time. God bless. And one other thing you didn't mention, you didn't call out specifically, but it's interesting because when you talk about giving back, you've also been a leader in the industry, which is what got us together. Yeah. And understanding that colleagues in the industry can change the narrative as well. And through that leadership and association and bolstering your sector of the business is again going to help you and help the industry. So thank you for that. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure. Cool. Great conversation. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.